So one of the things that happens oftentimes in conversations with folks, uh, particularly in planning events like weddings and uh, memorial services and that sort of thing, is, is folks represent a view of what's in the Bible, and they present kind of like, isn't the Bible just about like, like good feelings and good vibes and love and going to heaven when you die? Like, isn't that like kind of the whole, the whole thing? And then you read a passage like this and go, uh, wait a second, this dude sounds like they might be upset. And to realize that a lot of parts in the Bible are like this. There's sections where the real world, real life experiences, because these are real people writing at a real time, uh, can speak to the ways that we experience in our own life. Some of the realities that we face, the same kinds of emotion and struggles and challenges that you and me face each and every day. And so when we go there, that's why there's great comfort that can be found, especially in the Psalms. As we read these prayers, uh, and as we consider them for our own hearts, they become our own prayer book uh, in our own lifetime, in our own day. Every action has a reaction. Everybody's heard that, right? Every action has a reaction, not just in physics, but in psychology as well, right? Every action has a reaction. If you don't believe that, go slap your neighbor, all right? Don't do that, don't slap your neighbor, all right? Every action has a reaction. Each of us is wired, actually, with a particular stress response that helps us react to perceived threats. Each one of us is wired. And they talk about this, in fact, there's a commentary by Donald Williams, he begins his, his writing about this particular psalm, where he identifies two of these responses right from the get-go. He talks about what we know as fight, or play. That's right, there we go, you passed the test. There's only one question on the test, you passed. Which he also sees here in this text, like he sees fight and flight at work here in this text. And these responses that we have here, and that we've been looking at throughout the summer, these ones that we find here now in Psalm 55, what we've called direct speech from the heart, borrowing a, a phrase from Malcolm Geith there, that the psalmist recounts uh, what I'm sure many of us have had that we're familiar with. We've had a similar predicament to the one the psalmist is gonna talk about here. Maybe not exactly, but we, we face the same kind of emotions and the same kind of experience. And if you haven't, this is just in, in intro here, if you have not experienced what we're about to look at here in this text or something like it, what we have here is an opportunity that serves to remind us of the experiences of our neighbor and perhaps to crack the door open a little bit more for compassion to other people. But before we get to the situation at hand, it's probably, it's probably helpful to recognize that our, our psalm actually falls within a sequence of psalms. If you start with Psalm 51, you go through Psalm 55, there's actually a, a sequence there in the Psalter. Uh, psalm 51, we talked about that one, David's betrayal of Uriah, right? So we see that in, in Uriah's family. Uh, but then we see pro progressing through the Psalms, or I might add digressing through the Psalms here, we see treachery and betrayal, and growing distress. And so we're not surprised when we come to the start of our psalm this morning and we hear, give ear to my prayer, O God, do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and answer me. I am troubled in my complaint. Trouble has come around again, real trouble. And the language underlying these opening lines is that God would not look away, that God would instead be engaged with what's happening here. Uh, if you want to see a picture of how this Hebrew word operates, this idea of being engaged in the situation, go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, and you'll see it on the human plane, how we're not to look beyond our neighbor when they're in need. And so this sense is the psalmist wants God to take a good look at what's happening to them. And when God looks at the situation, here's what God's going to see. Look at verse 9, first part of that. The psalmist prays, Confuse, O Lord, confound their speech. 
That, of course, is the fight talk that Williams was talking about. Right? This is fight talk here. Confuse their speech. And it's, it's here that we see, and we might ask the question, how is the Bible, a song about fight talk? Who's ever heard of putting these type of words into music when you're upset or troubled? Apparently, you're not a Taylor Swift fan if you don't realize that that, that happens all the time. But not just fight talk. What the psalmist is doing here in verse 9 is reaching back to a primitive story of rebellion. They're reaching actually back to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And in that story, we see that people are, are conspiring against God. And they're, and they're building this tower in the city. And this, this particular psalmist attaches to this from their own day, their own observation, that that sort of thing is transpiring before their very eyes in the city. And they connect with this, this, this line, the second part of verse 9, violence and strife in the city. Things are going sideways. There's a rebellion that's ensuing or underway. And in verses 10 and 11, there's further relaying that the situation has become toxic, that the city has turned against this psalmist. But not only has the city turned, we learn in verse 12 that it's more personal than that. That something more personal has happened here. The betrayal here comes, according to verse 13, from a friend. Someone he trusted, who was close to him. And that betrayal is described later on in verse 20 as the violation of a covenant. And we know uh, David uh, had personal covenants. He made one with Jonathan. But the English poet William Blake writes this, says, It is easier to forgive an enemy than to forgive a friend. Our psalmist would agree, noting that he could bear the opposition of enemies. He could even avoid them if he had to. There was true enemies outside the state that were the trouble. But from a trusted friend, how do you get away from that? This is a particularly difficult and painful kind of wound. The psalm, like I said, is associated here with King David. And what we are reading here may be in response to a coup that was brought against his reign, that threatened his reign. The attempt that is most often attached here is one that's related to Absalom's rebellion, and particularly uh, one who was in counsel uh, to David who then switches sides. And you, you can read about that account in 2 Samuel 15. But the king's own counselor, a conspirator. So his own people, those closest to him, have turned on him family and friend have turned on him. They have now become his foes. You can just imagine how he must have felt at that moment. In fact, uh, David in 2 Samuel 15 will pray this. O Lord, I pray you turn the counsel of my counselor into foolishness. So in our psalm, the writer calls for something much worse. That was the light side of it. Turn his counsel into foolishness. But in the psalm, he says, let death come upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. Again, Sheol's that place of the dead. For evil is in their homes and in their hearts. This is yet another reaching back to an earlier story. So David's already reached back to Babel, but now in this case, he's reaching back to another rebellion in Numbers chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah and those who joined with him. Do you know the theme there? It's drawing back to rebellions. Clearly a rebellion's underway. Now the betrayer here would be divinely judged that's what this writer wants, like Korah and his lot. And that he, like Moses and Aaron, and their lot would be vindicated. And if you're not familiar with that Korah account, I would encourage you to take a look at it at some point. But hear what happens to Korah. Here's exactly what we hear in Numbers chapter 16. 
The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, along with their households, everyone who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that, they, that all they belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. There's that reference. The earth closed over them, and they perish from the midst of the assembly. So our psalmist here draws on two accounts, two accounts of betrayal, both representing affronts to God, and the second one, of course, drawing on an affront to the leadership at the time. But you don't have to be a king or a great leader. You don't have to be a leader at all to experience this kind of betrayal. We see this in our own day and age where people are faced by all kinds of upsetting troubles that hit them. Whether that's in your marriage, if you've been divorced and the betrayal has come from an unfaithful partner, or maybe in a business relationship that you have and there's a forcing out from that business or a taking over of the company, or maybe in a friend group that turns its back on you or a community group that tells you you're no longer welcome. We've all experienced at some point, maybe at different levels in our lives, that sense and feeling of deep betrayal. And maybe you yourself, when you heard that, when you experienced that, you too went shouting out of the room with words of fight. Or maybe you even took flight to escape and to find refuge in the midst of that time. I know at times where I've sat with people who've gone through very, very painful, painful experiences, and it changes them, it wrecks them. There's a quote that says, stab the body and it heals, but injure the heart and the wound lasts a lifetime. And that's what happens when betrayal comes against us, when we face those types of things. What is happening to someone also has a big impact on what's happening in them, inside them. Our psalmist here will speak about that interior assault in verse two, the second part of that verse two through verse five, and here's what that psalmist writes. I am troubled in my complaint. I am distraught by the noise of the enemy because of the clamor of the wicked, where they bring trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. It's no wonder that the writer adds to their fight words that sentiment of escape or flight. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I could escape. I would fly away and be at rest. Truly, I would flee far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. The constant assault, both inside and out. It gives a deeper and richer meaning to, what was it, that old Southwest Airlines commercial? Want to get away, right? You want to get away as fast as you can. Of course, with all this in mind, with hearing this sense of your betrayal of a city that turns against you and the betrayal of your friends, those very close to you, that sense of betrayal and loss, that hurt that exists within because of what's going on without. All of that raises for us our understanding of what Jesus endured in his own suffering. If you think about Jesus, how a city that, that loved him and embraced him and welcomed him and were triumphantly celebrating his arrival only a week later to be calling for his death. And to know that that arrangement that was set up for him to be persecuted and killed, to be put on a, just a fake trial and know that you're guilty before it even begins, even though you've done nothing wrong, that all of that is set into motion by one of your closest friends, someone who is in the close quarters with you, who goes everywhere with you, even into the courts of the temple. He's seen all the action seen all the miracles and yet turns against you. 
how much pain that must have caused Jesus' heart to watch all that transpire. I imagine that Jesus here at this moment, particularly as we think about his life and all the different places where he is, speaks out in this, this Hebrew poetry, he speaks the Psalms at different points, particularly around the crucifixion. I imagine Psalm 55 was one of those tracks that was on his own playlist. And as he reminds himself, even in that darkest hours, I can see Jesus going back to this Psalm and saying, reminder, cast your burden on the Lord. Not, not your emotional package that you separate from yourself. You say, Jesus, take this. But burden here is the idea of your lot in life. You cast yourself. You offer yourself to the Lord. And he will sustain you. He will sustain you. Operative there. Operative sense there. Not take it away. Not totally remove it. That's not what the promise is. The promise is that you're not going to go it alone. That you'll be sustained in the midst of those trials. He goes on to say, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's verse 22 of our psalm. Place your life in the hands of the covenant partner who is ever faithful. Place your hands in the Lord, a rare appearance of uh, that covenant name here in this text. That's the one who's faithful in verse 23 to judge and to vindicate and to call and support your cause. And though we are tempted to be pulled completely into an us versus them fight, those who assail us, that we want to go at them with fist and we want to make them pay, even though that's where we feel like we need to go, even in the midst of our own betrayal, the psalmist draws us back to a third conversation partner and reminds us it's not just us versus them. That instead, we are to be ones who trust in God. Verse 24. That we invite God to that conversation to participate and we allow God to do the work that God has promised to do. Jesus, of course, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus doesn't trade punches with his adversaries, nor does he even take flight. He doesn't run away, he doesn't hide. He takes up the cross, that horrible fixture from the ancient world, but goes on to demonstrate God's love for us and the extent to which God would go for you and for me to know that love. Of course, turning to our common uh, poet who has been a companion to us throughout the series, Malcolm Geit, uh, who will paint this picture for us in regards to how we might incorporate this psalm into our very own playlist today. Geit writes this, he says, Oh, hear my prayer and heed me. Help me stand steadfast in the stronghold of your love. Give me strength and courage to withstand these onslaughts on my soul. Help me forgive the bitter wounds of personal betrayal. Give me those wings indeed, wings of a dove, not to retreat, but rise within the veil and rest a while in you and be at peace, assured once more that goodness will prevail. We face all kinds of bumps and bruises in this life and even worse. And of course, we might want to be ones who fight or even fly away going to flight. But let me offer a third way in conclusion here this morning. You'll recall that it began with Williams observing the responses of fight or flight in the psalm. And that was, of course, Williams' commentary was written in 1986. But today, psychologists identify a, a third possible response, which is called freeze, right? Freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. Perhaps we need to do more freezing in our own uh, way of living. But don't confuse freezing here with inactivity, all right? 
You're like, I don't want to become an armadillo. All right, don't, I don't want to be possum, play possum. All right, don't confuse freezing with inactivity. In fact, Kirsten Nunez observed as much when she writes this about the freezing mechanism. She says, freezing is fight or flight on hold, where you further prepare to protect yourself. It's also called reactive immobility or attentive immobility. It involves similar physiological changes, but instead you stay completely still and get ready for the next move. All right, you get ready for the next move. And so we in our freeze, we pause. We pause to survey the landscape, but even more to join the psalmist in uttering a prayer. To use this, this playlist song as our soundtrack, but even more so to use it as our lyrics. And perhaps it's not as much praying and singing as it is like the psalmist in verse 17, it's moaning. A song like this can be a balm of care, one where we name the challenges that are before us, but we also name the promises. But then we cast our burden in verse 22, knowing that the holder of the next move is in us, that we're not the holder of that next move, but rather the one who sustained Israel in the wilderness, that's the one who makes the next move. The one who helped David amidst the coup described here in Psalm 55, that's the one who makes the next move. The one who goes to work and is at bat for you and me today, that's who makes this next move. It's a beautiful thing to know that the one who sustains us is also praying for us. It's a beautiful thing to know that the one uh, who sees our suffering can, can stand alongside us amidst that. Hebrews 4 actually tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who is every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. And that's the faithful one who steps up for us. And so our prayer this morning is simply this. In your goodness, O Lord, Give ear to our prayer. Oh God, do not hide yourself from our supplication. We trust in you. Amen. Amen.